Hello, welcome back to the Anti-Empire Project, the day 91 of the Gaza War sit rep. Um, these are sit reps that are intended to bring you some military analysis that understands guerrilla war and does not disdain uh, Arab or Palestinian military capacities. Uh, these are the two gaps that I've seen in military analysis of this conflict uh, from analysts that I like and follow on other conflicts. And so that is the gap I am trying to fill here. Today, uh, Nasrallah, uh, the leader of um, Hezbollah, the resistance group in Lebanon, gave a speech. We'll go over that. And uh, while we're on the subject of Hezbollah and Israel, we will also talk a bit about um, the 2006 uh, Israel-Hezbollah conflict, um, where we have a pretty good document about it uh, that has been making the rounds on the web. So let's begin with Nasrallah's speech today. Uh, this, it was this morning, our time. There's a lot uh, of interest in this speech, um, as always with Nasrallah. Nasrallah's speeches are always followed with great interest, um, and uh, and today's no exception. So it's uh, on the okay. It's as always uh, commemorating martyrs that were lost um, in the uh, in these various wars with Israel, um, and he commemorates all of these. Um, martyrs. Uh, and then he gets into the military, his own military analysis as uh, effectively the commander-in-chief of uh, of Nasrallah, I mean of Hezbollah. So he's talking about the so-called front, southern Lebanese front, uh, with um, Israel, he calls it occupied Palestine, and uh, how they opened this front immediately upon realizing what was going on. So Nasrallah has always maintained the position that uh, Lebanon, uh, that Hezbollah was not informed that uh, it was the attack of October 7th by uh, the Palestinian resistance in Gaza was kept in absolute secrecy and no one was told about it. And but uh, immediately, once they realized a day afterwards that uh, Israel was going to attack Gaza and they were going to attack them with extreme uh, violence, that they opened the front immediately uh, and started to attack Israeli outposts on the border with Lebanon. And he gives some quantitative uh, assessment of these attacks. He says they've conducted 670 operations on this front, uh, up to 20 plus uh, on some days, six to seven per day, targeting 48 outposts, um, targeting them 494 times, 11 outposts not directly at the border, 50 deployment points, and 17 settlements. And he attacks or I guess he refutes people who say, who mocked Hezbollah and said, oh, all you're doing is attacking towers, <laughs> metal towers. 
And he says, no, we're attacking the espionage equipment on these towers, which is expensive espionage equipment, hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars of equipment that they're just destroying and which they use to surveil and maintain surveillance uh, and intelligence on what's going on at the border. And all of that is gone now. So all they can do now is they have to use other means to try to watch. Um, he says when they try to re-raise the equipment using cranes, they attack that as well. And uh, and Nasrallah says that there are there's tremendous, he argues that there's tremendous censorship going on of the casualties and damage that Israel is taking. Um, he says the resistance is showing houses, vehicles. He thinks that there are uh, at least three times the number announced um, by Israel. So he says the, uh, the Israelis say there's 2,000 injured. And he says that doesn't make sense from some just hospitals from the north. There are at least 12,000 injuries in the north uh, alone. And likewise, this is just the Lebanon-Israel war. This is not the Gaza war, where there are also undercounts. You, if you remember, I've talked about, I've tried to analyze some of the summaries prepared by the resistance um, over the month of December. And what I came up with was a radical undercount of casualties in the five to 600 range vehicles, hundred over a hundred, closer to 200 armored vehicles and, and so on. You can, you can check the day 89 briefing out for those uh, numbers. Um, why is Israel suppressing these? He says they don't want to be embarrassed. They don't want to uh, bring morale to uh, Hezbollah or other resistance organizations. Um, and he says the settlers are um, pressing for more devastating action against Hezbollah. And he kind of warns them. He says, you, the settlers in the north would be the first to suffer from this. If you really want to stop the war with Hezbollah, what you need to do is get a ceasefire in Gaza. So there's explicit linkage again between what's going, what Israel is doing in Gaza and the war between Israel and Lebanon. And he does this analysis where he says um, they're making mistakes in Gaza. They've withdrawn troops from Gaza. Why? Because they're exhausted. Because they're exhausted. And they can't do the kind of rotation of troops that they would have done to get fresh troops because their troops are all tied up on the northern front. He also described in some detail what it means to tie up the troops on the northern front. And it's very interesting what he says here, because he says they can't, they have to stay at the border posts and despite getting hit, and they can hit back, of course, and that's why uh, Hezbollah has lost um, also a uh, hundred, I think more than a hundred uh, Hezbollah fight, uh, fighters have also lost their lives um, over the course of the past three months. But he says they have to stay there because if they withdraw from the border altogether, he says basically Hezbollah, they're worried that we could enter into their um, borders. 
we could cross the border and come. And he said that could happen and that could still happen. So he also leaves that kind of ambiguity. Uh, but he also he also said several things about opportunity. He said, we have a historic opportunity to take back all of the land that Israel is currently occupying, which includes the so-called Sheba farms, which were, which is Lebanese land that was occupied that Israel continues to occupy. He also says Iraq has an opportunity to get rid of the American occupation once and for all. He, they don't need the Americans to fight ISIS. Uh, he says ISIS is an American creation, and he points to the recent bombing of uh, Iran as yet another example of ISIS popping up to do an operation that happens to fulfill the objectives of the U.S. and Israel, and then disappearing again. Uh, a lot of praise for Yemen in Nasrallah's speech. Uh, he says people mocked Yemen's use of drones and firing of missiles that were simply shot down, and then Yemen took over the galaxy leader and extended their operations to the Red Sea, and that silenced all of the critics who said they're doing things that are ineffective. Um, he says now um, Yemen is sending this message to the U.S., <laughs> to Biden and Blinken and everybody else. And it's a warning as well that if they decide to try to attack Yemen, that's also not going to make the problem go away because, and that, that's correct. Uh, Yemen has been, Yemen had been under attack from 2015, continuous bombardment and siege by Saudi Arabia with, and Saudi Arabia is not an, an independent military. Saudi Arabia's planes, Saudi Arabia's bombs, Saudi Arabia's, I mean, everything is supplied by the US and, uh, uh, and West. In fact, there's a Canadian angle. Some of the armored vehicles were made in Canada uh, there was a very big contract that Canada had with Saudi Arabia and the vehicles did end up uh, in Yemen. Not all of them survived, but um, there's, they survived that. They defeated that war. They won a ceasefire by threatening with their increasingly advanced drones and missiles, the Saudi oil infrastructure. And now they're, conducting these offensive operations to try to stop Israel from continuing its genocide in Gaza. So Nasrallah praises them. He praises um, he, he praises the uh, resistance and uh, and he talks a bit more about um, about Yemen. I want to also talk about Amal Saad. Uh, she wrote an article in the Guardian uh, about just following uh, following the speech. Uh, it, it's called. I'll just show you a screenshot here um, of Amal Saad's thing. Uh, Israel is pushing Hezbollah to its limits. How it responds will define the future of this war. Uh, so she's talking about the assassination of Saleh Al Aruri uh, the other day. And how Nasrallah said that there will be um, there will be an answer. Uh, he said, and and it's she she's a very very good 
authority on Nasrallah and the kinds of calculations they make. She says Hezbollah um, could paralyze civilian life across Israel and cause much devastation in an upcoming war. Um, Nasrallah said hundreds of thousands of fighters from these allied countries would expand and deepen their involvement in the Great War, including Yemen. Yemen's got soldiers signing up. Uh, and he said, Hezbollah's, she, she finishes with this analysis. She says, Hezbollah's ideal scenario is to return to the post-October 8th rules of engagement defined by tit-for-tat skirmishes along the border, which would require that Israel absorb its response and de-escalate. Beyond that, its ultimate objective is for a ceasefire to take hold. Both of these aims depend on whether or not Israel, which is un- incapable of confronting Hezbollah on its own, seeking to draw the U.S. into a full-blown war. Should that be the case, the U.S. remains the linchpin that will determine if and how this war will escalate. So because Israel can't beat Hezbollah on their own and can't beat Iran on their own, trying to escalate with both is maybe an attempt to lose so badly that the US then has to trigger their response and then and then have the, this huge regional war which out of the chaos of which uh maybe they're hoping they win this is um not a sane and rational calculation but i'd say we are well past that point um, in terms of the way Israel is thinking and behaving right now. So now I want to talk to you about the last thing for tonight is an analysis of the previous big Hezbollah-Israel war. And there's an American, it's like a student paper, I guess, occasional paper um, by an American um, at Fort Leavenworth, the Long War series occasional paper, We Were Caught Unprepared, the 2006 Hezbollah-Israel War. And there's a lot in this paper um, that's of interest, just to say, what I what do we know about Matt Matthews? Uh, I don't know how much we know. I think it's his, must be his thesis uh, or a series paper. Um, it has a, it has a feel of a thesis as a, as someone who's read a lot of theses, it has a, that kind of, gives that kind of energy to me. So let's, um, let's get into this. They, there's a historical section and then a description of Hezbollah's uh, doctrine and the way that they, the way that they set out their forces to fight Israel in, in, a confrontation in which they they didn't exactly know that Israel was going to invade in 2006, but they knew Israel was going to invade again. They knew that they know Israel's nature and they know um, that Israel is eventually going to invade Lebanon again and again and again, uh, just the same as they're going to attack Gaza again and again and again, as long as the political uh, dispensation and the ideology of Zionism remains that is how they 
have done things since 1948. So Hezbollah's idea is Israel has an incredible air force. They're capable of destroying Lebanon from the air. And there's no anti-aircraft, as we've talked about before, is very complicated. It's very difficult for a non-state actor. It's not easy for a state actor because it's not just missiles. It's also radars. The radars can be identified. So you have to have layers of air defense. And and it's just incredibly expensive and very difficult to do. So the powers with really good air defense that we know of in the world are Russia, the United States, especially Russia. So there's the Russia has specialized in these air defense systems where they uh, have different missiles and different systems for different ranges. And then they have drones and they have an air force of their own that can also go up in the sky and shoot down your planes shoot your planes on the ground, attack your airports with standoff missiles. All of these kinds of things are not available to the likes of uh, Hamas or Hezbollah. So what can Hezbollah do? What they figured they could do is, as long as you're bombing us, we'll also be bombing you. So they develop rockets and they develop missiles, uh, standoff weapons uh, that can do damage. And they hope eventually to build a system, a missile complex, which Iran has, which Hezbollah does have now in 2024, which Syria is trying to get, um, and ultimately which Hamas is trying to get, which is a missile complex that is can hit Israel hard enough to deter them from destroying Lebanon from the air, from destroying their country. So you hit us, we hit you. That's what Nasrallah constantly talks about as the equation. So what they need to do is have rockets, rocket sites, and then they have to stop Israel from uh, being able to stop them, um, from being able to they have to stop Israel from being able to stop their rocket launches. They have to stop Israel from coming in and taking out the launch sites. Um, so how do you do that? How do you protect launch sites? Uh, this uh, American paper says sites a Hezbollah authority. Alongside these rocket formations is a ground array created south of the river, the main river in Lebanon, the Litani River based on underground tunnels and bunkers, explosive-ridden areas, and anti-tank units. This array was intended to confront ground forces to a limited extent, to stall ground incursions, to inflict as many casualties as possible, which would wear out Israeli forces, slow down their progress, and allow continued rocket fire. So the, there's the rocket units and then there's the units designed to protect the rocket units I, uh, the paper goes on the hezbollah fighters assigned to protect the rockets were armed and equipped with anti-tank missiles the cornet the american made a wire guided missile uh, they're prepared to conduct elaborate anti-tank ambushes fighters have trained extensively to integrate mortars and rockets into this lethal mix 
by pre-citing suspected Israeli avenues of approach and training forward observers in proper indirect fire procedures. Mines and in, uh, improvised explosive devices were expertly placed throughout the southern defensive sector to stop Israeli mechanized forces and enable Hezbollah to mass direct and indirect fires. A sturdy and technically advanced command and control system was designed to help with the expedient delivery of orders to the front, including wired telephone, not cell phones, but wired uh, telephone system. Evidence also suggests that Hezbollah's military commanders plan to keep firm operational control over their rocket units while giving tactical leeway to their ground troops. The supplies were secreted in well-fortified bunkers and entrenchments designed to withstand blistering IDF precision firepower. So that's the whole system laid out right there. And it's not, I would say the concept is not that different from what we're seeing the Palestinian resistance doing in Gaza. They have rockets that they're launching. They have ground forces designed to ambush and destroy the armored assaults that uh, from the Israeli ground incursion, wear them down, inflict casualties on them. So a, a little bit about what is called, what was called in 2006, the new model. Um, quoting Nasrallah, the resistance withstood the attack and fought back. It did not wage a guerrilla war. It was not a regular army, but it was not a guerrilla in the traditional sense. It was something in between. This is the new model. And the American author of this paper says it suggests that Hezbollah studied the Viet Cong as an inspiration for establishing an advanced tunnel network extending through the main avenues of approach. Uh, so it's a simple, inspired doctrine. And he contrasts this, Matt Matthews contrasts this with an overly complex doctrine uh, by Israel. So Israel, he says, has a proliferation of concepts, systemic operational design, effects-based operations, and he calls these an amorphous body of thought where you can target key command and control, logistics, transportation capabilities whose destruction will render the enemy incapable of employing his forces and unable to accomplish his military objectives. So you work to, you, you don't worry about bashing the soldiers on the front line, you leap over that front line, you skip that process, you induce a kind of psychological defeat in into the enemy so that he just can't operate anymore. And um, the SOD concept was systemic operational design, and he's very critical of systemic operational design. Um, there's a philosopher named Navi, an Israeli philosopher named Nave, who says, uh, you know, imagine you see a road, you see a room, you think of it as a negative place instead of a positive place. It's like a worm that eats itself its way forward. And he kind of mocks this. He says, for the IDF, the 
problem with the SOD was the new terminology and methodology. Not every officer in the IDF had the time or inclination to study postmodern French philosophy. It was questionable whether the majority of officers would be able to grasp the design. Many thought of it as elitist. Many others could not understand why the old system was being replaced by one that few could understand. Okay. I think that this is a little overstated. I think it's an interesting point. I think it is possible to be overly complicated, but I don't think that's really what's going on. I think what's really going on is that Israel doesn't have uh, a clear thing that it's fighting for. It's It creates enemies and then it fights to destroy the enemies. And it creates narratives and then it fights to impose those narratives on friends, enemies. Um, so there's um, there's a deeper problem than an overcomplicated philosophy underlying the doctrine. The deeper problem is moral collapse. It's uh, a lack of a, a, a meaningful objective besides destruction and killing um and and the constant creation and proliferation of enemies so he said uh that, that these concepts cost them in terms of training he said they the israelis did not see training above brigade level as important did not invest in it the focus on the cognitive side of the war and the media war. Instead of killing the bad guys like the good old days, they wanted to create a consciousness of victory on our side and a cognitive perception of defeat on the other side. And I think this is still a big part of what Israel is doing. And I also think it's a big part of what the limits of what they're coming up against because you can only impose a narrative for so long. There are ways that reality asserts itself and hard power asserts itself. So you know, there's there's a video, a TikTok culture, as people have called them, the TikTok army. And there are a lot of videos that they're spreading of atrocities they're committing and mockery that they're doing and and they're filming themselves dancing in front of buildings they're destroying and joking about destroying civilian targets and rifling through underwear and claiming to find copies of Hitler's book and all these things they're doing. And that that is, I think, to create a consciousness of victory and a cognitive perception of defeat. But this is... Um, it doesn't work if it doesn't work. If you can't impose your idea on the other side, if the other side has their own idea of what's going on, if the other side has is also simultaneously imposing real material destruction on your military and real material costs and real loss of life on your military, then it's not so easy to continue with this narrative structure.
so in um later on in the paper there's a discussion where Dan Hallett, who's recently, he was, he's the Air Force uh, chief during this war in 2006, and he's recently said there's no way to destroy Hamas. But at this time, in 2006, he was proposing strikes against symbolic Lebanese targets, against leaders. He said, if we hit all these targets, Hezbollah will collapse as a military organization. <laughs> the idea was that Hezbollah would give up and everybody would go home happy change the conditions by forcing them to become political and abandon the military option. But as the author says of this paper, he says there was simply no lever to pull that would cause Hezbollah to crumble. And Halitz overemphasizes the air war and air power. And there's a really funny epigraph when the paper discussed in chapter four of this paper we were caught unprepared where he talks about the ground war 17th of july to 14th of august so so 30 days there's a stark contrast here which is like the war in 2006 was 30 days long the gaza war has gone 91 days and has no sign of stopping in this war Israel lost maybe between 100 and 200 killed and about 1,000 to 2,000 injured. Israel has lost way more than that now. So Hezbollah won the war in 2006, inflicting much, many fewer casualties than Hamas has already inflicted in a shorter war, in a war that is already three times as long as Israel's war. So again, we, we're back to this question, which I think we're going to be studying for a long time, of how and why Israel is going so determinedly into the deeper and deeper into this war, despite taking such losses and, and such moral collapse, uh, such international disgust, such uh, dismantlement of their vehicles and equipment and loss of their soldiers and injuries and mental um, traumas at the expense of their hostages. So there's the, the determination to stick to this war is new for Israel in recent history. And, but, but there's this amazing epigraph by an Israeli soldier. He says, evidently they, meaning Hezbollah, had never heard that an Arab soldier is supposed to run away after a short engagement with the Israelis. So he's trying to say there's this myth that Arabs are cowardly and they run away instead of fighting, but nobody gave Hezbollah that memo, which is pretty funny. Um, another, interesting, another interesting difference between the 2006 war and this one is this this amazing passage on page 45 matthew says israel was forced to request an emergency resupply of precision guided missiles from the united states in 10 days the israeli air force had used up most of its high-tech munitions 
And yet this huge expenditure of weaponry did little to change Hezbollah's military logic or its fighting capability. So that was a big story, the asking the Americans for a resupply. Meanwhile, now there's many flights every single day from the Americans resupplying them with 2,000 pound bombs and 500 kilo bombs and every kind of munition, shells. It's just like 10,000 tons of stuff, many flights per day. And that's just, that's not even uh, notable anymore. And that was notable in 2006. Um, the question of world opinion was a big issue in 2006. Uh, one major general told Halots on in July, he said, "We, without a ground invasion, we cannot remove the rocket threat. If the government doesn't approve it, they must stop the campaign now. The fact is the war between the Israeli Defense Force and Hezbollah we can describe as a draw. We should tell them the political echelon, we cannot limit the rocket attacks any more than we're now doing un unless we take over all the ground up to the river. So the media campaign was floundering and the co the media was projecting cognitive perception of defeat onto the Israel. So that's the idea that you can control the narrative and just assert and impose a narrative on the whole world is also incredibly arrogant, right? There's no reason, why should this group of people be able to impose the narrative over um, any other group of comparable size or wealth, uh, of which there are many in the world? Um, so this is uh, another difference. And there's yet another one. There's, there's a discussion of the reserves and the the Hezbollah commanders, he, he says, found that Israeli troops were poorly organized and disciplined. IDF commanders were also disturbed by the performance of their troops, noting a signal lack of discipline even among its best trained soldiers. IDF commanders hesitated to put them into battle. They refused orders. Brigade commanders had platoon entire platoons arrested and carted off to jail from time to time they got orders to seek out hezbollah on the ground but every time the orders were canceled at the last minute when asked that when they asked their division commander for an explanation he said they didn't want us to get killed or kidnapped by hezbollah or by all the friendly fire that was going on soldiers would have been going on suicide missions so Part of this is because of the type of operations they are used to in the West Bank, where there's no military opposition to them the way there is and there was in 2006 in Lebanon and the way there is now in Gaza. And that may be coming in the West Bank too. If it, the, the longer this conflict goes on, the more there will be transfer of things like expertise and um capacities and even weapons from one part to another and if there's this is the other this is the other kind of 
problem that Israel has when you abandon all the carrots. So the West Bank compared to Gaza was under control because of patronage, because of the possibility that you could live a normal life in the West Bank after the Oslo Accords. Not a great, you know, you wouldn't have freedom of movement. You would still be subjected to all kinds of restrictions, but you could have a little job. You could have a salary. You could buy things. You could get on the internet. And now with the intensification of land theft and the intensification of violence in the West Bank, you're taking that away. And you're saying, no matter what you do, we're going to kill you. We're going to take your land. We're going to murder your family. We're going to execute you in cold blood, et cetera. All of the torture you take you off to prison. So if that's, what's going to happen anyway, then you're left only, you might as well fight back. So this is also something that's missing from the arsenal of Israel is anything positive. All they're offering is death and torture, and that cannot have any effect except uh, to generate more and more resistance. Um, there's a, another pattern, another part of the pattern which we've seen in um, in the current war, which is the the ceasefire having been negotiated in 2006 after some spectacular ambushes. The Israelis attacked a lot of, um, they did a lot of air attacks right up to the end, but then Hezbollah also launched 250 rockets right in the closing hours before the ceasefire. Um, a couple of other notes from this paper, which is really good. There's this constant um, search for an alternative to ground warfare, trying to part with the concept of land warfare altogether. Look, the search for precision firepower as magical game-changing systems. Um, and... <clears throat> the false confidence in the abilities of advanced weapon systems, the divorce from reality. Um, and uh, one the philosopher, this Nave, he says something really insightful actually here. He says, Year, so uh, the author says, years of counterinsurgency operations had diminished its convention, the Israeli military's conventional war fighting capabilities. The IDF was completely dismayed to find that its land forces could not conduct a successful ground campaign in southern Lebanon. Although Nave was highly criticized, his observations are astute and timely. The IDF fell in love with what it was doing with the Palestinians. In fact, it became addictive. You know, when you fight a war against a rival who's by all means inferior to you, you may lose a guy here or there, but you're in total control. It's nice. You can pretend you fight the war and it's really not a dangerous war. I remember talking to five brigade commanders. I asked them if they had an idea of what it meant to go into battle against a Syrian division. Did they have in mind what a barrage of 10 Syrian artillery battalions looked like? And Syria, of course, is uh, destroyed, still remains uh, destroyed by the proxy war since 2011. But Syria has um, is definitely part of the axis of resistance and uh, is a major ally of 
Hezbollah, Hamas, etc. Especially since they patched things up following the Syrian civil war and following 2014-15. So these are all um, really interesting. There's there's another there's one other thing I wanted to talk about in this report, which is like it's called the 13 principles of war. Hezbollah develops 13 principles of war. And this is really interesting. And I think that both, I think that Israel adapted to this to some extent, and Hezbollah has adapted to the adaptation. So this is a 1985 Hezbollah's 13 principles of war. Avoid the strong, attack the weak. Protecting our fighters is more important than causing enemy casualties. Strike only when success is assured. If you are spotted, you have failed. Don't get into a set-piece battle. Be patient. Keep moving. Keep the enemy on constant alert. The road to great victory passes through thousands of small victories. Keep up the morale. Avoid notions of the enemy's superiority. The media has innumerable guns whose hits are like bullets. The population is a treasure. Nurture it. Hurt the enemy and stop before he abandons restraint. So I think especially number 13, stop before he abandons restraint. I think Israel has gone out of their way to show that they have no restraint. They will not be restrained. Nothing can restrain them. And that's now why they're in trouble uh, at, for what it's worth at the International Court of Justice for genocide, because they're so they've been so determined to prove that they have no restraint. And I'm not sure how that's going to work out for them in the medium term, but if um, if the past three 90 days are any indication, it leads to, it does not, certainly does not lead to a quick victory. Uh, I guess I'll stop there. Um, there will be plenty more to talk about, I'm sure, in a few days. I don't yet know what that is. Uh, I have promised um, to go over October 7th yet again. And that'll probably happen again and again. And and uh, I think that the notion of um, abandoning restraint, the notion of Israel as a casualty-averse army and trying to de... trying to... trying to change that story, trying to trying to show Israel's opponents that they're not casualty averse, that they're willing to take casualties, that they're that they're willing to kill their own people even if necessary. I think that's also part of what Israel sees as or what Israelis see as their adaptation this this time around. And I don't I don't know, but I think this is also getting them into additional difficulties. Uh, militarily and so we'll get into that in the next in the next sit run uh, as always please like and share and all that stuff